1: Hi there, listener. You're hearing the archive presentation, in six parts, of our classic episode covering the work, life, and strange experiences of famed sci-fi author Philip K. Dick. This episode also covers associated topics like Christian Gnosticism, physicalist and dualist views of consciousness, the thousands of pages of philosophical ramblings that Dick wrote in the last years of his life, and how in many ways, thanks to his visionary fiction, We are all living in the reality that PKD made. We're dropping one part into our feed for each of the next six weeks. If you'd prefer to hear all of this in one big MP3, it's available as episode 18 in the show feed. But we know that some of you out there prefer our modern digestible chunks approach to show delivery. Digestible chunks approach to show delivery over our original huge topics and multi-hour marathons approach. So this is an opportunity to check out some of the older stuff in short doses while we work up brand new stuff. You'll start hearing those new episodes in January of 2024, and we hope in the meantime these will tide you over. You can reach us at theparanoidstrain.com, email theparanoidstrain at gmail.com, join our friendly group at facebook.com, forward slash groups, forward slash and if you're so inclined, you can support us at patreon.com forward slash the paranoid strain. And now, please relax as our pink light penetrates your brain. Don't worry, that analogy will make sense after you listen. Jesuit, out. Then there's another complication regarding our consciousness that's been introduced by modern technology. The contents of our minds, as Baggett notes, are increasingly mediated by this technology.
2: For example, Jesuit remembers appointments almost exclusively via reminders on his phone. Do these thoughts and facts about his life exist inside his mind? If not, does his Google Calendar count as part of what we might think of as his mind? How about the documents, files, and links he uses to build these shows? Until he speaks the final script, they're the only place where his coherent thoughts can be experienced. You can't pull the script out of his mind, even if his mind is the thing that orchestrated it in the first place.
1: And as you might expect, it keeps on getting weirder, as in the famous Twin Earth thought experiment.
0: Putnam famously said that meaning just ain't in the head. What he meant by that was that if one person has in their head one meaning of the word, and another person has in their head the exact same meaning of the word, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're referring to the same thing. Meaning also comes from the external world. It's not solely reliant on the mental states, or the physical states of the brains of the people that are talking about it. It's important for the world and the actual state of things to come into the mix. If that didn't make any sense, let's take a look at the specific thought experiment and see if that can clear things up. So, imagine we're back in 1600, specifically before Henry Cavendish has discovered that water is H2O. Imagine we have Earth, but also somewhere else in the universe, a place called Twin Earth. On twin Earth, there is a perfect, identical counterpart to everyone on Earth, and in fact, everything is perfectly the same with one exception. On Earth, water is in fact H2O, whereas on twin Earth, water is in fact XYZ. However, everyone on twin Earth and Earth is completely unaware of this because Henry Cavendish on Earth hasn't discovered water is H2O, and Henry Cavendish's twin on twin Earth hasn't discovered that water is XYZ. Yet. So now imagine that we have someone on Earth called Oscar and his twin on Twin Earth. We'll call him Twin Oscar. They have perfectly identical brains. When Oscar says the word water, he's clearly referring to H2O It's the only thing he's ever seen that looks like water. And so he's referring to H2O, whereas when Twin Oscar says the word water, he's referring to XYZ. There's no way that Twin Oscar could be referring to H2O because he's never seen it. And there's no way that Oscar could be referring to XYZ because he's never seen that. Even though their mental states and their brains and the words they're using are perfectly identical, Oscar and Twin Oscar are actually referring to very, very different things. Therefore, meaning just ain't in the head.
1: Okay, so there's definitely a real controversy going on between the hard-nosed reductionists like Ramachandran,
2: who is in agreement with, we should be clear, the vast majority of top scientists in the relevant field, as near as we can tell,
1: and the opposing side, Chalmers, Hoffman, and a small number of other truly thoughtful dissenters against the physicalist reductionist paradigm. But as you also might expect, the real problem is when bullshit artists like, oh, I don't know, just to pick a name at random, Deepak fucking Chopra. God, do we hate that guy. Insert their confident nonsense into the mix. But since we already did an extensive takedown of Chopra in the past, we're going to assume you accept our assertion that his crankery about quantum consciousness as such is... It's crankery. We should probably at least briefly mention a group of very loud, very enthusiastic consciousness researchers.
2: We want you to imagine just enormous quotation marks around that last word
1: who maintain that through the use of drugs like DMT, ayahuasca, etc., humans don't simply experience drug trips, but literally access an entirely separate and distinct dimension. They base this on both the vividness of the experience and the consistency of the entities that various unrelated DMT-using people tend to meet when they be trippin'. If this sounds pretty fuzzy and unconvincing, join the club. What you tend to hear when you try to get details are descriptions like this. As
3: soon as I broke through the tunnel, it felt like I had died. Uh, Because the body dissolved and then the reality, you
2: know, the sound broke apart and everything broke apart and I had this momentary feeling. It's like, okay, I've died. And um, what I realized is that
3: from this higher reality perspective, all those experiences were the same. Like, from that perspective, it was impartial to the traumatic nature of human experience. They were all just
2: being used as material to form the fabric of reality.
1: We know what you're thinking. How is this any different than the pink light and the exegesis? Touché. But the reason Phil's experience is more convincing than the DMT enthusiasts is mostly because he spent the rest of his life trying to figure out what the hell it was. DMT junkies seem all too convinced that they already know exactly what they experienced.
2: And you could too, bro. Just do DMT. Joe Rogan podcast, bro.
1: One of our favorite responses to the suggestion, which is not just made by internet bros, but by some actual research psychiatrists, which is that doing these drugs can get you access to other genuine dimensions, comes from the excellent blog, Slate Star Codex which in the guise of reporting a DMT trip actually satirizes the idea that it represents a heightened reality. In it, the narrator asks the entities he encounters to offer proof of their existence, providing factors for 15-digit numbers and other feats presumably within the purview of superintelligent dimension-spanning brainiacs, but which are beyond the ken of mere mortals on drugs. The fact that these entities ignore his requests combined with the fact that no such experiment has ever offered provable results in the real world means the dmt reality slash consciousness argument currently seems like kind of a dead end one last clip which we think synthesizes the neurology and the self-created reality aspects of this whole section rather nicely comes from dr anil seth's ted talk video
4: now all this puts the brain basis of perception in a bit of a different light. Instead of perception depending largely on signals coming into the brain from the outside world, it depends as much, if not more, on perceptual predictions flowing in the opposite direction. We don't just passively perceive the world, we actively generate it. The world we experience comes as much, if not more, from the inside out as from the outside in. If hallucination is a kind of uncontrolled perception, then perception right here and right now is also a kind of hallucination, but a controlled hallucination in which the brain's predictions are being reined in by sensory information from the world. In fact, we're all hallucinating all the time, including right now. It's just that when we agree about our hallucinations, we call that reality. Now I'm going to tell you that your experience of being a self, the specific experience of being you, is also a controlled hallucination generated by the brain. Now, this seems a very strange idea, right? Yes, visual illusions might deceive my eyes, but how could I be deceived about what it means to be me? For most of us, the experience of being a person is so familiar, so unified and so continuous, that it's difficult not to take it for granted. But we shouldn't take it for granted. There are, in fact, many different ways we experience being a self. There's the experience of having a body and of being a body. There are experiences of perceiving the world from a first-person point of view. There are experiences of intending to do things and of being the cause of things that happen in the world. And there are experiences of being a continuous and distinctive person over time, built from a rich set of memories and social interactions. Now, many experiments show, and psychiatrists and neurologists know very well, that these different ways in which we experience being a self can all come apart what this means is the basic background experience of being a unified self is a rather fragile construction of the brain, another experience which, just like all others, requires explanation. To sum up, so re- with
1: all this confusion, it still currently seems as though the most likely scenario is that, as Marvin Minsky put it, and as Ramachandran would agree, minds are what brains do. Or, to quote Baggett one final time,
2: To say that mind is a higher order emergent property of the brain is simply to say that a miracle occurs, but using a set of words that imply something less than miraculous. But still, this is about the best we can do within the limitations of our current scientific understanding of consciousness and the mind.
1: was a lot. But hopefully now you see how complex and loaded it is when we're trying to pin down the concepts of consciousness and the self. In his own way, PKD never stopped puzzling over these questions. Probably the single most important work he created outside of the exegesis, based on his 2374 experience, was the fantastic novel, Valus. At once the most grounded and one of the strangest of his major novels, the book is in many ways a skewed autobiography, but at a remove. The main character, as we noted earlier, is called Horse Lover Fat. Fat is a potentially suicidal neurotic who believes he has been contacted by God in the form of a pink light. Among his small friend group is a science fiction writer named Philip K. Dick, who reports on Fat's endless self examination related to this pink light experience and its almost universally negative impacts on his life throughout the novel. As the narrator puts it,
2: I'm not sure God did anything at all for him. In fact, in some ways, God made him sicker. This was a subject on which Fat and I could not agree. Fat was certain that God had healed him completely. That is not possible. There is a line in the I Ching reading, always ill but never dies. That fits my friend.
1: Hopefully that quote makes it obvious that the novel is not an attempt to persuade the reader that Fat's vision is self-evidently true and should be adopted by everyone. In fact, the narrator's doubts about the importance and validity of his friend's experience are peppered throughout the book.
2: Knowing this by direct room from the divine made Fat a Latter-day prophet. But since he had gone crazy, he also entered absurdities into his tractate.
1: The tractate is a condensed version of the exegesis that's quoted throughout Valus. The book's twin obsessions are, much like PKD's real-life interests, focused toward Fat's pink-light experience and the subsequent downfall of the Nixon presidency in 1974, which for real-life PKD and his friends, as well as the characters in the novel, seems like evidence of intervention by a divine hand to bring down a corrupt and repressive government, a real-life black iron prison break. Fat is absolutely convinced that these two events are linked.
2: The Sibyl said in March 1974, the conspirators have been seen and they will be brought to justice. She saw them with the third eye, the eye of Shiva, which gives inward discernment, but which, when turned outward, blast with desiccating heat. In August 1974, the justice promised by the Sibyl came to pass.
1: Given how world-shaking the Nixon resignation seemed at the time, it was inevitable that Fat slash PKD would decide that his experience was the precursor to it and that Tricky Dick's downfall was potentially the first gasp of a new age of spiritual enlightenment ushered in by the Gnostic Christ. The overthrow of Yaldaba Oath and the Black Iron Prison was near. His friend's skepticism at Fat's oracular pronouncements and concern about their effects on his mental health are brought up short, though, in the novel when they go to see a provocative new science fiction film called Valus. We won't go through the full plot of the movie within the novel, but suffice it to say, it depicts the downfall of a corrupt politician through the efforts of an extraterrestrial satellite called. well, you know. The narrator, Fat, and their friends all agree that the coincidental connections to Fat's experience are too strong to be ignored. So they travel together to meet with the film's creator, a rock star named Eric Lampton, and his wife Linda. During the meeting, Fat's group learns that the Lamptons believe they are the latest incarnation of immortal three eyed beings who have shepherded the development of humanity since ancient times, and that they are, like Fat and Co., struggling against the might of the Black Iron Prison. During the discussion, it appears that the Fat slash PKD group is accepting all of this as plausible. But as soon as they leave the Lamptons, the narrator dispels this impression.
2: Well, I thought, that's something to accomplish all in one weekend. Escaping intact from the most whacked out humans on the planet. It's amazing that when someone else spouts the nonsense you yourself believe, you can readily perceive it as nonsense. In the VW Rabbit, as I had listened to Linda and Eric rattle on about being three-eyed people from another planet, I had known that they were nuts. This made me nuts too. The realization had frightened me. Their realization about them and about myself.
1: The one aspect of the meeting that remains with the group, though, is the impression that Lampton's preternaturally mature-seeming two-year-old toddler is, in fact, the incarnation of holy wisdom, and that in spite of her parents' obvious disconnection from reality, she is a harbinger of greater spiritual harmony to come. In fact, during this meeting, she, in a sense, heals the narrator and horse-lover Fat, who finally come to understand they are actually the same person, namely Philip K. Dick.
2: P. K. D., the author, plays a language joke here. Horse lover Fat is upon translating the name Philip Dick from Greek and German into English.
1: Thanks to the child's healing presence, the two sides of his personality, skeptic and believer, are finally joined together. Unfortunately, said toddler is subsequently killed by one of the Lamptons' hapless, delusional friends, who is attempting to gain access to her wisdom via laser. This promptly causes Fat and the narrator to once again separate. The novel ends with Fat searching the earth, positive that the child will be reborn, and desperate to find her next incarnation. Unlike the earlier novels we covered, there's not much to be translated into exegesis-style metaphors here. Valus is a straightforward, fascinating encapsulation of Dick's own experience as both believer and skeptic regarding his own transcendence. So now we've seen how Dick's exegesis experience combines his obsession with Gnostic Christianity, the concept of self in the cosmos, and the idea that he has created a sort of roadmap to the secret history of the divine through his own past books. And we hope you found our tour as interesting as we did. But still, even having examined all of this through Dick's late-life lens, we encourage you to go back and pour through the original novels.
2: And for the bravest among you, the exegesis.
1: Why? Because as one of the exegesis editor's notes,
2: As infectious as Dick's readings are, they don't do justice either to his fiction or to the astonishing intermingling of narrative and reality, fiction and experience that Dick lived through in and after 374. As he writes elsewhere, 374 keeps changing, as if the experience itself were alive. In fact, it is alive, partly because he keeps feeding it through his fiction. It gets more like the novels as the novels get more like it. How do we get outside this feedback loop of reality and fiction to what really happened? We can ask the novels about that.
1: For our part, we can tell you that really engaging with Dick's oeuvre is mind-expanding in the most gratifying, least hippy-dippy sense. Of course, it does have its risks, as it can be easy to fall into the PKD mindset. For example, and I swear this is true... During the research for this episode, I found myself getting targeted Facebook ads to participate in a Bay Area clinical trial under the aegis of UCSF for something called the Cellular Aging and Neurobiology of Depression study. Put that together and you'll see they're testing a medication called CAND. They advertised it with that acronym, precisely the same name as the drug that let people put their consciousness in dolls in Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch. This is not a joke, it really happened.
2: The only thing that kept Jesuit from going full-on vagalist was that other PKD fans were commenting on the link, similarly wondering if they were alone in seeing this and trying to confirm they weren't also going cuckoo bananas.
1: Okay, we've made most of our points. Now it's time to examine the impact of Phil Dick's work on the past 40 or so years of sci-fi movies, as well as some of the work by other super-genius writers who've dealt with similar themes.
0: And now, from the
1: annals of Tinseltown... The paranoid strain goes to the movies and the library. Before we examine Dick's huge influence on SF cinema, we'd first like to offer a quick reading list from other brilliant minds who've dealt with reality and its many illusions in novels and short stories. This is hardly an exhaustive list, but we guarantee you a great time if you check out any of these. First up, Stanislaw Lem.
2: You may recall him as a Polish writer who believed PKD was the only sci-fi guy in the West who was worth reading.
1: We heartily recommend the entirety of Lem's written output, or at least the part that we've read since it's been translated into English. But the book that's most germane for this discussion is the 1971 novel The Futurological Congress. In it, Lem's frequent narrator Ijon Tichy apologies for that pronunciation— is visiting Costa Rica to attend the titular event, which has been convened to discuss approaches to dealing with the overpopulation problem.
2: While leaders and scientists are still concerned about the impacts of growing population, many estimates now indicate that human population will peak this century before beginning a slow decline. Back in the 1970s, all indicators were that population might continue to increase at an unsustainable rate into the distant future, leading to mass starvation, etc.
1: While he's there, rebel groups foment protests against the government, and it's discovered that the authorities have released psychedelic drugs into the water supply to calm the population. Tishi is dosed and then experiences numerous hallucinations of captures by rebels or the government, helicopter crashes, escapes by jetpack, and waking up in completely different bodies, before he's finally diagnosed as incurable by hospital staff and put in suspended animation until a treatment can be found. He next awakens in the distant year 2039, to discover that the world is a technological paradise. Soon enough, though, he learns that all of this paradise is actually a chemically-induced illusion. When he blocks the inhalable hallucinogens that are pumped into the atmosphere, he realizes the beautiful, abundant world around him is, in reality, horrific. He's not eating a five-star meal in a gorgeous restaurant, but rather slurping gruel in a concrete bunker.
2: Wait, why does that sound familiar?
4: Do we have a deal, Mr. Reagan? You know, I know this steak doesn't exist. I know that when I put it in my mouth, the Matrix is telling my brain that it is juicy and delicious. After nine years, you know what I realize? (sighs) Ignorance is bliss.
1: Yeah. Give us a minute to get to the movies. Anyway, this is only the tip of the iceberg of the revelations that Tichy experiences in the novel. It's a blackly comic delight, and you should check it out. Next up is the work of Jorge Luis Borges, one of the Paranoid Strain's absolute favorite writers and one of the literary world's true visionaries. Borges never wrote any novels, but his short stories are cream of the crop, and we recommend that you pick up the single-volume collected fictions as soon as possible.
2: Pro tip? The essays and poems collections are also great.
1: We're going to focus here on a single story, the bizarrely titled Talon Akbar Orbis Tertius. See the show notes for a spelling. This encapsulation of the plot will do nothing to lessen the impact of actually reading the story, but I pretty much have to spoil it to even begin explaining it. So sorry about that. In this, as in many of his stories, the narrator is Borges himself. In it, he and his real-life friend discover a land called Akbar is mentioned in certain copies of an encyclopedia.
2: Younger listeners, an encyclopedia was a series of books that people used for reference before Wikipedia came along.
1: But Akbar only appears in a few of these otherwise identical sets of books, which is weird because they're all copies of the same edition. It turns out that Akbar, which according to the elusive entry is either in Turkey or Iraq, but doesn't show up on any other maps has a literary tradition that's entirely devoted to describing not their land, but other imaginary worlds, especially one called Tlón. Borges and Friend attempt to find any other mentions of this in any other reference materials, but come up empty-handed. Years later, Borges inherits a book when a family friend passes away and discovers it's the 11th volume of a complete encyclopedia of Tlón.
2: Remember, that's the imaginary world that those who live in the mysterious and perhaps fictional Uqbar write about.
1: It gradually becomes clear that for the past couple of centuries, a group of brilliant minds calling themselves Orbis Tertius have worked to create an entire world and detail it in an encyclopedia. The volume Borges discovered is part of this effort. By this point, the secret society has created the language, culture, history, ethics, aesthetics, and everything else that would bring this imagined place to life. The world of Klon is fascinating, and in a huge nod to George Berkeley and the other professors we discussed in our last show, the population takes idealist concepts Specifically, the concept that minds, sense impressions, and ideas are the only real things to the extreme. How extreme? Well, they don't use nouns. For example, Borges notes they wouldn't say the moon rose above the water, but rather something that translates to upward behind the on-streaming it mooned. That's
2: very weird.
1: Indeed. And Borges has a field day with the many ways that this approach, that is, truly basing a world on idealism instead of scientific reductionism, would play havoc with science or business or even the idea of maintaining a coherent concept of a consistent world. It's an intellectual tour de force that's made even better by his Postscript, which is about what happens once the world becomes aware of this encyclopedia. It turns into a global obsession, with people adopting Tlon's philosophy wholeheartedly, to the point that, several years after the original story was written, Borges notes, in a sense, the world he knew is gone, and Tlon has essentially become the new world as people now experience it. Tlon has absorbed the Earth simply by presenting a different version of reality, which it turns out that people prefer. A final author mention here. Ted Chang. he's a contemporary, incredibly brilliant writer whose amazing novella The Story of Your Life was adapted into the excellent sci-fi film Arrival a few years ago. He also wrote a very, very brief story set one year after a new, extremely popular, deceptively simple device went on the market. That device is called a predictor, and in the story, it's become a popular fad.
2: Imagine the fidget spinner craze of 2017, only with some horrific, unforeseen consequences.
1: The device features a button and a light. The trick is the light only goes on a second before you press the button. If you think about pressing the button but don't, the light won't go on. If you press the button while somehow trying to pretend you're not going to, sure enough, it lights up one second before your
2: press. Okay, definitely odd. But what's the big deal? The big
1: deal is that this little device proves once and for all that free will is an illusion. We've briefly touched on this before, and it relates to Dennett's argument that there is no self inside our head that's doing our seeing, hearing, thinking, etc. for us. Basically, if our minds are material and not something else, a la Chalmers, etc., and all of the matter in the universe has been interacting according to the laws of physics since the Big Bang, then that means the matter that makes up our brains, and hence our minds, is the way it is because of all the things that have come before us. And therefore, the way your brain reacts to outside stimulus, that is, the reason you think and do the things you think and do, is a result of all of those previous interactions. Which in turn means that you had no choice but to think the way you do, and to make the choices you make. The composition of your brain is the result of outside forces. If you woke up and ran this morning, or instead woke up and ate a cake, either way, it's because you had to. The material in your brain reacting with the outside world made that inevitable at this point in time. Which doesn't mean you shouldn't get up and run in the morning and shun eating a breakfast cake. It just means that when you do so, you were always going to do so. Because that's how you are, and that's how the universe
5: is.
2: Holy shit. That's a lot to take in.
5: Yeah, but as Chang puts it, There have always been arguments showing that free will is an illusion, some based on hard physics, others based on pure logic. Most people agree these arguments are irrefutable but no one ever really accepts the conclusion. The experience of having free will is too powerful for an argument to overrule. What it takes is a demonstration, and that's what a predictor provides. In other words, many
1: people knew there probably wasn't free will, but the predictor proves it beyond a reasonable doubt. And while most people, though shaken by this realization, move on with their lives, about a third of those who use the device lose all interest in living, and eventually they have to be hospitalized to keep them from starving to death. The final paragraphs reveal that the story you've been reading is a message sent from a year in the future, warning readers that they must continue believing in the illusion of free will, as it may be the only thing that can save civilization. But of course, the author notes ruefully, this effort itself is of course futile. Because everything's determined, the people who are going to use the predictors and lose the will to live were always going to do so. And the sending of the message itself is a waste of time. But it was a waste of time that he has always been fated to send. The whole story takes about five minutes to read, and it's available online. Show notes. There are many other reality-bending fictions we'd love to discuss with you, but we really have to take a moment before we go to talk about the impact that PKD has had on the movies. To get the obvious one out of the way, The Matrix is essentially just a blendered version of Philip K. Dick, the philosopher Jean Baudrillard, Japanese manga, and an aesthetic that was ripped directly from the bizarre and amazing Invisibles comic series created by Grant Morrison. We've already made several allusions to how much the Wachowskis owe PKD's novels and the exegesis, but a couple of final points. First, remember the way that every person in the whole Matrix is basically turned into Agent Smiths in the largely forgettable third movie? That's essentially what happens at the end of Three Stigmata, only with Palmer Eldritch's artificial eye, teeth, and arm replacing the suit-clad Hugo Weaving. Then there's this quote from the exegesis, one of the many times Dick restated his core thesis.
5: See if you spot similarities. We seem to be confined within a mental prison, but something vital has secretly penetrated the enclosing ring around us and fires assistance and advice to us in the form of video and audio signals. Neither the prison ring is visible to us, nor the signal system which fires, nor the entity which is penetrated through us. Help is here, but we still remain here within the prison. We aren't yet free. I take it that the camouflaged invisibility of the signals is to keep the creator of the prison from knowing that help is here for us. The first great well-kept secret is that we are slaves in prison. The second, that help has quietly breached through the walls to inform us. To teach us how to lift the siege, what to do, and when.
1: It's not like all of this is a problem exactly. We've all heard that good artists copy and great artists steal and all that. We just can't help but wish that the Wachowskis had stolen more material from their excellent sources and thereby improved the latter two lackluster films in the trilogy.
2: Note Jesuit insists that there is a world in which a completely different version of the third movie makes the second movie good in retrospect. I won't bother to share this with you as it's obviously wrong. But if you ever meet him in person and mention it, just be sure you're ready for a long, boring digression.
1: And we have, of course, mentioned a few of the dozens of direct adaptations of Dick novels and stories, more of which are coming out every year. Some are great, like Blade Runner and Spielberg's Minority Report. Some are huge, campy fun rides that deviate tremendously from the source material, like the original Total Recall.
3: Get your ass to loss. Get your ass
1: to loss.
2: Loosely based on PKD's short story, we can remember it for you wholesale.
1: And some are trash, like the forgettable Ben Affleck trifle paycheck, or the late-period Nick Cage nightmare next, or the Gary Sinise vehicle. Is that even a phrase that makes sense? Imposter, point being that there are plenty of swing and miss adaptations as well as the great ones. But the biggest PKD influence is on good-to-great films that aren't direct adaptations, but rather leverage his ideas to tell new stories, as was the case in that one good Matrix movie. For example, there are films like Open Your Eyes,
2: poorly remade for American audiences as Vanilla Sky,
1: as well as Inception. Part of each film's plot deals with the question of whether or not the protagonist is in the real world or a fully simulated one. As a bonus, Inception, which concerns agents who enter the dreams of their targets to acquire information or to subconsciously influence their actions, has a real nested reality scenario highly reminiscent of Ubik's ever-shifting, layered dream world. There's also the paranoid fantasy of They Live, where everyman construction worker Rowdy Roddy Piper accidentally puts on a pair of magic sunglasses and learns that the world is run by hideous alien beings who are controlling the masses through subliminal messages. Consume, obey, etc. These are disguised behind TV shows, billboards, etc. No one without the glasses can see the aliens or the messages, and in fact many are resistant to learning about all this, which leads to one of the greatest ever on-screen brawls as Piper fights his friend, played by Keith David, in an attempt to force David to try on the glasses.
2: a greater number of terrifyingly realistic kicks to the testicles been lovingly rendered in such a short period of time. Endlessly rewatchable. Please note that Jesuit forces me to say these things. It's so
1: good. And its sinister, manipulated unreality owes plenty to Philip K. Dick. There's also the flawed but incredibly engaging *Existence* from David Cronenberg, whose plot is too fucked up to explain here, but in which, once again, layered dreamlike realities culminate in a shocking ending whereby we discover the motivations of our main characters. In essence, the very fact of who they are is suddenly upended as the illusions are removed.
2: Plus, it offers some of the creepiest scenes ever. As users jack into a virtual reality simulation by making physical connections from their brains to these horrifying fleshy biopods. Peak Cronenberg body horror.
1: Perhaps the best use of Dick's work is in the superb film about love loss and the inevitability of repeating past mistakes, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. We won't spoil the experience for those who haven't had the pleasure, but the movie's tender, heartfelt tale of two broken people who need and repel each other in equal measure. As well as its stunning visualizations of the way that memory can change as the mind is altered by technology, makes it, while not a direct adaptation of any specific story, perhaps the greatest rendition of Philip K. Dick's themes that has ever been put on the screen.
2: I'm not a concept, Joel. I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. I'm not perfect.
5: I can't see anything that I don't like about you. But you right will! Right now, I can't.
3: But you will! You know, you will think of things. And I'll get bored with you and feel trapped because that's what happens with me. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Okay.
1: It's time to wrap up. So we know PKD never truly settled on what his experience meant. And toward the end of his life and of the notes that make up the exegesis, he began to acknowledge that what he was processing was maybe more about himself struggling to understand and make sense of his chaotic life and inner sense of consciousness than it was about any outside agent. As one exegesis editor noted,
2: After seven years of spinning an astonishing plethora of theories, the fact that Dick can now admit to his failure to provide a workable explanation is remarkable. His insight here, that the abstract emerges from the noisy particulars of the world, rather than as in the Platonic model, from an ideal reality of which empirical reality is a flawed cubby, is a growing realization in science studies as well. In How the Laws of Physics Lie, Nancy Cartwright argues that all that ever actually exists is the noise of the world, from which scientific laws are abstracted. In a very different sense, contemporary interpretations of quantum mechanics provide similar insights. As such, the stabilities that constitute scientific laws emerge from a probabilistic froth at the quantum level in which different kinds of world trajectories are encoded. In this view, the froth counts as the ultimate reality and the stability as the epiphenomenon."
1: You'll see that here Dick has reached the same hard-won impasse when considering reality and his place in it that the quantum physicists, and indeed the philosophers we dealt with last time, did. Reality appears to be a thing that we construct in our heads. We don't know how we do it, we don't know what it corresponds to exactly in the world outside of our heads, but we're continuing to work at the problem and accepting easy answers, the way that conspiracy theorists do, has absolutely no chance of getting us closer to the truth or to give the final word to the man
5: himself. My insanity, given an insane world, is paradoxically a facing of reality. And this is sane. I refuse to close my eyes and ears. Our world and our proper role in it is paradoxical we are then all mad but i uniquely choose to go mad while facing pain not mad while denying pain these are simply different paths but mine hurts more it is not necessarily better it is more a curiosity why would i choose this route because i am a saint i have kept my soul as now and then an occasional reader realizes but i have not yet proven that there is a soul thus I may have chosen my route in vain. Little can be said for my point of view, except that it can't be logically demolished. If it could be, I would have done so. Thus, I am in touch with reality. So then, in what sense am I insane? I am insane in that I continue to face the truth without the ability to come up with a workable answer. I indict the whole universe and ourselves as irrational, myself included. I really do not know anything in terms of the solution. I can only state the problem. No other thinker has ever stated a problem and so miserably failed to solve it in human histories. Human thought is, basically, problem-solving, not problem-stating. Again, my very failure to come up with a plausible solution, even when I try, simply verifies the magnitude of the problem, rather than impugning my problem-solving faculties. It shows that what we normally regard as solution systems really evade the reality and complexity and magnitude of the problem. Fundamental irrationality giving rise to pain, grief, loss, and death. My failure is the failure of all mankind. To find a solution or explanation, the fault is not mine. That's exactly right. The fault isn't his or ours.
1: We're all just doing our best. But in order for us to remain a part of the grand, endless effort to get ever closer to the reality behind reality, we, like Philip K. Dick, must remain constantly on guard to protect against succumbing to the paranoid strain. This has been the Paranoid Strain. Email us at the at gmail.com and visit on the web at theparanoidstrain.com. Also we'd love to have you sign up for our Facebook group. Just send us a request. As always, we're grateful for the musical stylings of Daniel Arizona and the Paranoid Strain Orchestra, and indebted to the dulcet Northern European interjections of Ms. Dana Unicorn. Our latest soundtrack was mixed by South Fork Haas, Big Mucho put together our super-duper website and helps in ways big and small, and Willem UFO's pretty pictures are the searing pink light that illuminates our deepest thoughts. I'm Fearful Jesuit. Thanks for listening. Next time, we recap a bunch of new stuff that's happened in relation to our previous episodes. It's gonna be a... Quick Hit! rah 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 recap In the meantime, remember, the world is chaotic, but it's not out to get you. Or at least, not you specifically.
2: Transcendence, Schizophrenic Meltdown, Rupture with Reality, Potato Potato.